The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. ...explains basically how it is that we got to this point as Moses is about to give the, the law to the people of Israel. He's about to express to them the stipulations of this covenant and the background explains how they came out of Egypt through the wandering to be at this moment standing on the plains of Moab, just across the, the River Jordan from the Promised Land, actually standing on a little piece of the Promised Land, but most of it lies before them. They just, as we saw last week, just fought against and conquered King Sihon and King Og, Amorite kings, and took their land that had been promised to Abraham to be given to their descendants. The conquest had begun, and that's where we pick up this morning in chapter 3. And God's had a, God has a purpose here in this passage this morning that he would be at work in his people to create in them and in us a confidence that is rooted in God's character that then leads to a, a united action, an action on all of our part together. So I'm going to read... Deuteronomy 3, verse 8, all the way through the end of the chapter. I'm actually going to read half of it now, pause and make some comments, and we're going to be focusing most of our time on the, the last half of the chapter this morning. So let me read first, verses 8 to 17, before I make a couple of comments on that. <coughs> so we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Salakah and Edre, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aror, which is, in, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Jair, the Manassite, took all the region of Argob, that is, Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Makaathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havath Jair, as it is to this day. To Makir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead, as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border from Chinnereth, as far as the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. That's a long section of verses with a lot of people in a lot of places, and it reads just like a, a land settlement document from that day. When someone would buy a piece of property or a king or a, or a powerful person would give some land to somebody, they would have a document like this that basically clarified all the borders. Who gets what and where? And they had just taken, as we, we saw there in verse 8, they took that land out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, and they're dishing it out. 
Now notice all the pronouns in that section. They're all about what Moses was doing or particular individual Israelites or the people of Israel as a whole. It's all, we did this and we did that. They were conquering and then they were dividing. They had to do these things. There's the message in that. However, as last week showed us, and we're going to see again this morning in the, in the next section, you can hear the, the, the two things stuck together in verses 3 and 4 from last week. It was that the Lord gave into our hand King Og, and we struck him down and took all of his cities. There's the Lord, and we did it. Both those things together. And obviously, this first section emphasizes what we did, and then picking up in verses 18 and following. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Verse 18 begins with Moses pointing out the other side of this equation. We've just seen that he says, I gave you this and you did that and whatnot. And then verse 18 says, ah, but in fact, it was the Lord who gave you this land to possess. See the two sides there. We had to do it for sure, but he's the one who stood behind it. He made it happen. And given that fact, here's a command for you. Now, picture the setting, and if for a moment you can imagine me to be Moses and you to be the people of Israel, Moses is speaking to a, a vast multitude of people. In the next couple of verses, he kind of focuses in on, on a segment of them. And he says to this segment, you have received this possession. You've, you've received the land here. We're standing on it. You have received your rest. However, you can't stay here. All of your armed men, all your men of valor, must go over with all of their armed men. All of your armed men must go over the Jordan and go to fight. You have to leave your wives, your children, and your livestock, your, your wealth. That's what that represents. You've got to leave your whole life here. 
and cross over with them into the, the land on the other side and fight over there. And after they have received their rest, then we'll all have our rest. Then we can come back and enjoy our possession over here. But you're not done yet. You've got to go over. And you can see them kind of hearing this. I'm supposed to leave my wife, my children, and all of the livestock here, all my wealth, in this place, and cross over there. Aren't all the people around here going to realize after the months that there aren't any men here? And we just conquered this place. We just took this by force. We passed through all these other lands that those folks don't like us, and there are other people on the border around here. Aren't they going to realize that there's nobody here? What? We're supposed to do what? But that's the command. And he backs it up by talking about this command that then he gave to Joshua. But realize that this is a command, perhaps at one time it was given privately to Joshua, but he's telling all of the people about this. So it's, it's a little bit like at a wedding ceremony, how the pastor speaks to the bride and groom, but it's really talking to everybody. He's picturing this as, I'm talking to Joshua, I'm giving you a command, but all of you now hear it. And what's his command to Joshua? It's a command rooted in a fact, rooted in a promise. The command, and think how this connects to their situation but needing to cross over, don't fear. That's the command. Do not fear. You with your own eyes have seen what the Lord did to these folks. He wiped them out. He wiped them out at your hand. And he's going to do the exact same thing to all of those folks over there, to every kingdom that you encounter. So don't fear. The Lord himself, that's the emphasis in the text. There's a little underlining in the grammar. The Lord himself will fight for you. That's why you shouldn't be afraid. He tells Joshua, but all of them that. And then he recounts to them a prayer conversation, which again, while it was a private prayer, he's telling all of them about this. They're supposed to get something from it. He tells them about his prayer conversation with God. Verse 23, I pleaded with the Lord. A very in intense word of earnest, yearning. I was really wanting this from God, and I, I sought him. God, please let me go over and see this land, which I am utterly convinced you're going to give to your people. He's yearning for that. He knows that it's going to happen. And he talks about the might of the Lord, his greatness. And twice he talks about his might, his mighty hand, the mighty works that he does. You are going to bring them in. Let me see it, please. And God says, no. He was angry with me on your behalf. Referring back to an incident, you can read about it in Numbers 20. The Lord had instructed Moses about how to deal with the people, and, and Moses got angry, struck the rock. And God said, you have not shown me holy before the people, therefore you cannot enter the land. You can read the whole story back there, but really the point here is not about Moses. The point is about there is a transition in leadership from Moses to Joshua. That's what he's trying to get across to people. I cannot go across Joshua will go across. He can go up onto the mountain and he can see the promised rest from afar. See the symbolism in this. You can look, Moses, at the promised rest from afar, but Joshua will bring them home. That's the text. 
the passage for this morning. We're coming to the point where we're almost closed out the historical backlog because it ends with, so we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So he's kind of, he's almost catching up to the present. But his point here in this passage, let me put it in a sentence. To encourage them, to instruct them, in a sentence, God will give his people rest together. Two parts there. God will surely, indeed, give his people rest together, meaning with the, the people of God all together. I'm going to proceed this morning as I'm going to unpack that statement. I'm just going to look at the two halves of it about God giving rest and then the together part. That's the, the main idea in this passage. I'm going to start with the first half. <coughs> Let me change the wording slightly here. Our God will surely bring us rest in Jesus. It's my first observation here. Our God will surely, he himself will bring us rest in Jesus. This promised rest of God is again a major issue in this passage, as it is throughout the whole book. The whole book takes place in the middle. The whole thing is on a pause just before the promised rest. And it's a major issue here again. They're standing right there on part of the land, but they're looking at the rest of it. I'm emphasizing the word rest because you can see it in verse 20. Verse 18 talks about the land, verse 19 the cities, verse 20 the land again, but the real issue is the rest. They're not just after simply geography, after just dirt and water and trees. They're about what that means. Think about for yourself, when you're, when you're on a trip and you want to get home, it's not just that the particular bricks that make up your house are special. There were bricks at the house that you were just at. And there were bricks at the hotel you stayed in. It's not those bricks. It's that it's home. It's rest. These are a nomadic people that have never had a home. From the time of Abraham, they have been wandering over thousands of miles. They've wandered around this land. They were shipped off to Egypt where they lived in somebody else's country and then eventually lived as slaves there. And then they wandered through the desert and finally now God has brought them to the point of saying, I'm going to bring you home. And what that means is not just that you're going to have land for yourself, not just that you'll have cities, but that you will have rest. Rest, that's an internal issue, not sleep. Rest. Rest. <sighs> that. That's what he's giving them. That's what he promised them. And he is surely going to bring it to pass. Moses is utterly confident. He looks at his greatness, his might, his power. Who else in, in all of the heavens and earth can do such mighty acts as you? God, I've seen you bring us out of Egypt through ten plagues. And we walked through the Red Sea on dry land. And you carried us through the desert and actually prospered us. And we emerged from there and by your hand annihilated two civilizations. You have brought us here and all of that argues you are going to bring us home. To rest. It's going to happen. God wants to make that really clear. He is going to give to his people rest. Now, it's, it's really easy to read a passage like that and say, well, yeah, 
It's right in the Bible. I mean, sure, of course. God is mighty and, and he's strong. You read this, but it's really easy to read that and not really have it come home in any meaningful way. This happened how many thousand years ago? To a totally different people in another part of the world. So, I, you know, sure. And? It, it doesn't really grab you. It's really easy for that to happen. It doesn't seem like it connects. But it does connect to our lives. Think this through how it connects. All of this physical reality... All the physical reality that's being depicted here in the Old Testament is meant to be prophetically pointing at a spiritual reality. It's all functioning as, here's a term I've used before, typology. Typology is, think of it like concrete prophecy. Not verbal prophecy, but concrete prophecy. An easy example is the slain lamb is a prophecy of the slain lamb, Jesus. But it's a concrete thing. You can actually touch this lamb. It's physical and prophetic at the same time. All of this is prophetic. All of the delivering of the people out of slavery, through wandering, to home. It's all tracing out the spiritual journey that the people of God walk through. And we know that for certain because Hebrews chapter 4, amongst other places, tells us so. We've looked at that before. You can reread that chapter later, but in that chapter, the writer points out that even the scriptures argue that after Joshua physically led them into the physical promised land of Canaan and they got there and rested, that God kept talking about one day you need to go to the rest. He kept talking about it in the Bible. And so if they're in Canaan and God still is talking about a rest that is to come, Canaan's not the rest. Canaan's not the end goal, what they're really after. So as Hebrews sums up, there remains then another greater rest yet to come, a heavenly rest. It's the spiritual that the physical's pointing to. Joshua went over at the head of the people and led them into the rest. As Hebrews 4 points out, there is another greater Joshua who will lead the people into another greater rest. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, same name, which I cannot think is an accident. We talked about this some weeks back. There is a greater rest and there is a greater Jesus, and he carries them. That's what Jesus does. He brings his people into the rest. So, so how does this all here in Deuteronomy 3, how does it connect to our lives? It's our story. It's our story. God taking a people out of slavery and by the work of a great Joshua taking them into rest. He himself doing it. Him going before us to fight and by His mighty hand assuring that it will happen. So we look at this and we see God Himself working through Jesus to fight for us, to deliver us. Think about what that means. 
Think, think about the spiritual parallel of all this. Okay, you kind of got to translate a little bit here because when I'm talking about fighting, I'm talking about a land, a rest, a leader, there's a spiritual and a, and a physical level, the physical pointing at the spiritual. You got to translate it a little bit. So think about the translations. God calls a people, brings them out of Egypt through the wandering wilderness into the, the promised land. What's that spiritually? Ephesians 1. Paul says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us in love for adoption through Jesus Christ. The whole idea of there being a people delivered out of slavery and duress, the whole idea is God's idea. And then he acts to make it happen. He goes forth to convict a person of sin and righteousness and judgment. God the Spirit's work. And he sends then a sacrifice that can take away that judgment. God the Son's work at the cross. He opens eyes. He gives faith and repentance as through a human mouth he preaches the gospel. And then he saves. And then he goes about moving into the heart of the saved one. To renovate it from the inside out. This is his work again. He preserves us by warnings as we pass through life and then delivers us through death into the rest. Every step of the way, it is the work of God. He himself fighting for us. He himself coming up with the idea. He himself making it possible. He himself opening our eyes so that we grab it. He himself keeping us and he himself delivering us. It is the work of God from start to finish. And somewhere, you are somewhere on that continuum. As Paul says, he who began a good work in you will surely carry it to completion. He himself began the work. He himself will carry it to completion. What am I saying here? That the whole of the salvation process, that the physical stuff here in Deuteronomy is pointing at, the whole of the salvation process from start to finish is a work of God. Salvation is of the Lord. And he accomplishes it by his power. And what that means for us is, I think, obvious if you think through what power does to you, power for you, does to you emotionally. Think about the connection there. And we have a prime example of this built into the very center of human existence, the family. If you're a child, or if you've had children, or if you've ever seen children, you know this. Now, all kids are a little different. Different kids have different comfort zones and therefore different places where they get out of their comfort zones. But all kids have this. I have one child, for instance, who was... Uh, very apprehensive about learning to ride a bike. And then I have another child who didn't care at all about that, but's afraid of thunder. And I have another child who doesn't like to talk to clerks in stores because they're intimidating. Another child has a great big imagination and has lots of bad dreams. Maybe it's fearing failing on the sports team and being embarrassed. Every child is a little different, but all have places where you say, that's beyond my comfort zone. I'm tense. I'm nervous, I lack confidence, I'm afraid. What's the answer to all of those problems? Maybe I should say, who is the answer 
to all of those problems. You're, if you're a 10-year-old in here right now, I mean, let me ask you, when you're afraid, who's the answer to your problem? Who do you go to? Who do you run to? I'm not, I'm not looking for the Sunday school answer here. I'm looking for the, the in-your-house answer. Don't answer back to me, but think about it. When you have a bad dream, where do you go? When you're in the store and the clerk's intimidating, who do you go to? Instinctively. A child who had a bad dream about spiders a couple nights ago, and she did not go to her big sister's bedroom. Whose bedroom did she go to? Ours, obviously. She wakes us up. I go into her room and, you know, look for spiders in the dark. <laughs> there aren't any there, of course. It's instinctive. I never taught that once. When you have a bad dream, come wake me up. <laughs> Nobody teaches that because it is instinctive. They don't go wake up the other sisters. They go to mom or dad, especially for stuff that's scary. Needs to be squashed. <laughs> because in dad's strong arms, I'm safe. I'll be fine there. In mom's strong, comforting arms, I will be secure. It's instinctive. We have it built into the very fiber of all of our lives. Now, if you're a teenager, and I ask you that same question, there might be a little wavering, because you might go to your friends. It changes a little bit as you get older. Why? Because you realize that mom and dad can't control everything, and they don't know everything, and they're not omnipotent like I used to think they were. So we're realizing that mom and dad, they aren't the prime example of this. The actual real place that we're supposed to go, the one who is omnipotent and does know everything, brothers and sisters, we have a father who is all-knowing and is good and is strong beyond all imagination. And in his arms there is complete security. If you see a God who himself will fight for you, who himself will take care of everything that frightens you, and there's stuff to be frightened of in life. There, there is. There is scary stuff. But the command is, do not fear. Why? Because the Lord himself will fight for you. You have seen some of what he has done, and he will do all of that to all of them. So don't fear. If you see a God of that kind of power for you, you will rest in him. It's the antidote to fear. Confidence not in my own abilities. Confidence not in my, my parents, my friends, but confidence in him. The strong one who himself has obligated himself to fight for his people. I think about this for myself. I, I try to work through what am I afraid of in my life? Because if you find something you're afraid of, you're very close to what you don't trust God for. So I work through what am I afraid of in life? And, and I'm, I'm not 
I'm really not that afraid of, of things related to finances or at this point in my life failing health. For me, what I'm afraid of is failing and looking like a fool. It's the root of my sin of overwork and worry. I don't know what it is in your life, but, but write something down in your mind or write it down on your piece of paper. What are you afraid of? Because right there, you're very close to where you are not working through God himself and strength fighting for me. What I need to do, what I struggle to do consistently, is take the, the fear of failure and looking like a fool and put up beside that text like from Psalm 84, the Lord bestows honor and favor. It's trite and it's true. The only opinion that counts is his. Who hasn't heard that? I don't really believe it though. That's why I fear. That's what I need to repent of. And trust a father who himself will fight for me and put on me his blessing, who will bestow on me favor. What is it for you? Where do you fear? And at that point, realize, oh, I need to think this through. He himself has promised that he will give me rest. He's got me. He's begun this work in me, and he's got me all the way through to the end. He's not going to drop me or, or get halfway through and decide, this is boring. I'm not interested in you anymore. He's not going to do that. Or I don't like you anymore. I'm upset with you now. No. He has you. He will carry you like a father carries his son. But Moses told the people. Do not fear. He himself will bring you rest in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, it can be. There is hope for you, but only in Jesus. This parallel of the spiritual life, where he begins and carries through all the way to the end, if, if you're not on that yet, you're not going to reach the rest. So come to him and say, Father, you are God over all of the earth. You're God over me and over my life. Save me. Put me in Jesus, please. He never turns people away who come to him like that. Most sincerely, I know of believers. Trust him. And when you look at it like that, and fear gets chased away, then what happens is that you become a person who can actually act in confidence. And that leads us to the second observation. <coughs> the second observation highlights something that God intends to characterize our community. Let me put it like this. The people of God are to fight towards our rest together. People of God are to fight towards our rest together. And I mention this one because if you only talk about the first observation and, and only look at that in some closed system, you can get a really uh, lopsided view of things. It can seem that God himself does it, so God does everything, and I don't do anything. So I'm going to sit back here on the couch and wait for God to bring it about. That would be to misunderstand something. Last week's account clearly shows God giving the land and clearly shows them fighting for it. Same thing here in this passage. Verse 21 says, don't be afraid, it's the Lord who fights for you. But equally, verse 18, your warriors shall cross over armed. 
Why? I mean, if, God's, if God himself is going to fight for us by his mighty hand, why do we even need to go, let alone bring weapons? Obviously, it's because he fights through your fighting. Spiritually, we have to fight, and he fights through us. As Paul would say in Philippians, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We've got fighting to do by his power. It is not either or, it's both together. I have to engage. You have to engage, but it will only happen by the power of him who strengthens you. So the first element to see here is that there's a call, a challenge to us as the people of God to fight. And some of us need to hear this. I meet many people. I see it in my own life, but I meet many people who seem to have an extremely passive view of the Christian life, camouflaged under the language of grace. Do you get that? Camouflaged under the language of grace. Well, God's a God of grace, so I don't have to do anything. He'll do it. I'm so against works that I don't want to go anywhere near them. I'm going to do nothing and I'll be passive. Miss something. Stealing a quote from another pastor, I heard this years ago. I think it's very tight and accurate. He said, get this, grace is not opposed to work. Grace is opposed to merit. That's important to get that in, in your mind. Grace is not opposed to work. In fact, grace empowers work. The grace of God that saves has appeared to us and teaches us to say no to ungodliness, Titus. Grace is not opposed to work, it's opposed to merit. It says, by my work I can earn something or deserve something. That's not possible. But grace is what gives us power to actually work and to fight as we're journeying through life, to not just drift, but to to try to seize hold of righteousness, to care about and strive after holiness. The Bible is full of commands to walk in holiness and righteousness because we are to work by the power of him who works in us. The people of God are to fight together. And that last word is actually the most important word for this context here this morning. Think about what's going on in verses 18 to 22. In 18 to 22, he's telling a people who have just received their possession that they have to get up and go to war for strangers. I mean, yeah, they're all descendants of Abraham. They're part of the 12 tribes, but there are millions of them. They don't know those folks from Adam. They're strangers. And you're telling me that I've got to get up here and leave my wife, my children, and all of my my life here and go to fight for months at risk to myself for people that I don't know, for a place I'm never going to live. Why is that? Again, tell me. Because from God's perspective, it is a single body. Do you see see the verse 20? Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they occupy the land, and then you can too. 
Until they have rest, you can't rest. Until they have their possession, you can't enjoy yours. We are all in this together as a single body. The Jordan River provided a great opportunity to say, you stay over there on your farm and we'll stay over here on our farm. And from the very beginning, God through Moses is saying, overlook the natural barriers and realize you are a single people in this all together. This has obvious implications for a church. I hope they're leaping to your mind right now. That we cannot look at a third of the congregation and say, you guys are doing okay. Great. Stay there and enjoy it and let them struggle on by themselves. Can't do that. Well, they don't have rest, you can't either. You are, in fact, your brother's keeper. Or I could say it this way, of course. We are a body. While, we are, while any single one of us is the church militant, that's a, a technical theological term used by some writers in the past, the church militant, the church on earth still fighting, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, while we are here still fighting, we are all here still fighting for each other. We need a shift in mindset that creates a strong bias in us to overlook natural divides and recognize that we are in this for our brothers, to lay down, to sacrifice, to put ourselves at risk for their greater enjoyment of relationship with God, for their good, for their sanctification, for their growth. We need a shift in mindset away from a natural focus on ourselves and towards a giving of ourselves. A giving of our time, our emotional energy, our, our financial resources. In order to, as Hebrews 3 says, to exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or as he, Ephesians 4 says, to speak the truth to one another in love, that we all may grow up in every way into Christ and no longer walk in futility as the Gentiles do. Think those verses through. I walk around in danger of being deceived. How am I to avoid that? You tell me. You fight for me. You point it out in me. And me likewise. I walk around in danger of walking in futility as the Gentiles do. How do I avoid that? You speak the truth to me in love. You fight for me. You don't just say, oh, that's on your, you know, you, okay. I'm okay over here. You deal with it over there. No. You live in my life, and I live in yours. We need a shift in mindset that would make us eager to carry one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep. That can be hard. That can be emotionally taxing and, and sticky. It would be a lot easier to just let that go all by themselves, wouldn't it? But we're not allowed to. 
We're all moving towards our rest, and it's a fight every step of the way, and we are to fight together. We must have a, a shift in mindset. How does that come about? Not just by sucking it up and being different. You can try that for a while. I mean, you might get somewhere with that for a little while, but it won't ultimately have legs. Put yourself back in the context of Deuteronomy 3. He tells them, cross the border and fight for your brothers. What's their mental context for that? They're standing on ground that they saw the greatness and the mighty hand of God give to them. They hear in the promise to Joshua and in the prayer of Moses, they hear something about the awesome nature of God who will control all of these factors and bring them through. If I want to skip through this and get to the, the end, it's, it's by seeing God. How, do, how are they changed to have a different mindset? Not by trying harder, but by seeing a God who himself has put himself in this to bring it to pass, and has called them to join him. I'm becoming more and more aware that as, as a person and that as a congregation, we have a great need we have a great need for genuine community. I'm talking about it in little places, mentioned some things at the congregational meeting yesterday about, so maybe you've heard me talk about this a little bit, but it is a great need of ours. We cannot be a Sunday morning only event place. A place where we come to sing songs, where we come to hear preaching, and then we go home. We, we cannot be that, individually or as a body. It has, it has ramifications for our witness, but I'm not really talking about that this morning. It has great ramifications for our own personal holiness and pursuit of the rest. If we have superficial relationships with one another and we aren't living in each other's lives, how in the world do you guard me from the deceitfulness of sin? And where do you speak truth into my life? And how do you carry my burdens and weep with me when I weep? Or me likewise? How in the world does any of that happen? It can't. It cannot, apart from relationships, community, togetherness. We have to have that. Now, the struggle for me, I'm an introvert. There are large chunks of my life that I just want to get away. Some of you don't know what that's like. Some, some of you do. All of us so need this community. We need to figure out how, I need to figure out how do I pursue community while still being, in some sense, true to what God has made in me. 
How do I do that? I'm not sure. I don't know all the answers. But part of it is by becoming convinced that I need community and, and you need my community. Both. But we will never get there unless we as a people and you individually are rabidly passionate for the supremacy of God in all things. How does that connect? Some people might be thinking, that's Steve dropping his phrase in there because he likes that one. It, it connects. It's right on point. I am changed. You are changed. This is how sanctification happens. As we behold him, we become like him. When our eyes are fixed on, when we are captivated by God and all he is for us in Christ, we're drawn there like, like a moth to the flames. We're drawn. And in that is the changing that makes me like him so that I value what he values. I, I pursue what he wants, to, wants me to pursue. In other words, I begin to value and pursue his people. That's how the change process happens. It's first through him to you. If I go to you first, it will fail. Eventually. We can't get to community unless we are a, a rabidly God-centered, Christ-centered, cross-centered, gospel-centered people. That's how we are changed. We strive together after Christ and look towards him and depend on him. God will give us his people rest together. So I think, to, to wrap this up here, I think that what it, what it challenges me with is kind of two things that come back together at the, at the back end. Am I... Am I looking at him and, and convinced that he stands with me and that he fights for me? And am I convinced that I need to fight with you, alongside of you, not against you? That he fights for me and I, I need to fight with you. And then the back end, and how this comes together is that we grow into the people that we are supposed to be and inherit the rest. Relationship with God in its fullness now and one day coming. He will give us rest together. Let me pray. <coughs> Father, I need you to, in my own mind, settle these things. To give order to them in my own mind and in the, the minds of those who, who sit here. Would you do that, please? Would you graciously work in us to change us and make us the, the people that you want us to be? Father, we need that to happen. Would you conform us to your image? Do you use your scriptures? Would you use brothers and sisters coming alongside of us to do that? I pray for change because I need it. Brothers and sisters here need it. 
Would you be pleased to give it in grace? Would Christ be honored by what we become? I pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.